0: The message. Live. Yes, life is a banquet, and most poor suckers are starving to death now. Come on, Agnes, live. live. Come live. Child. live. 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 U A L T. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Great River ME1NV, the Harrison 32EQ, and the RNC 500. Analog tones on a Wednesday afternoon in the Moon Cabin. My friends, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. I am grateful for you. I appreciate you. And... I'm excited to tell you about my guest on the show today. Kristen Conger is the creator and host of the Webby-winning podcast, Unladylike. Unladylike is a long-running series that, as Kristen puts it, explores what it's really like to choose your choices, big or small, public or private, inside or out, And Unladylike is a remarkable show. Format-wise, it is a seamless hybrid of narrative storytelling, investigative reporting, and advice, with sharp, conversational writing and great interviews. Recently, they have done episodes on things like bisexual imposter syndrome, how to make a profitable feminist podcast within a patriarchal capitalist economic structure— the competitive femininity of sororities at colleges and universities in the South, the bizarre world of social media mom influencers, and most recently a multi-part series on magic mushrooms that looks at psilocybin therapy and the relationship between mainstream psychedelic evangelism and indigenous communities. And the purview of this show is at once wide-ranging and yet somehow incredibly specific. And I think that is because Kristen is, I think, one of the relatively few people in audio who has a clear sense of why she wants to explore subjects like this on a podcast specifically. Unladylike isn't just an excellent source of authoritative reporting. It's a great show. It feels like spending time with someone who has done the work to understand herself done the work to understand whatever complicated and nuanced subject she's covering in the episode that week, and that she can't wait to share her findings about all of that with you, because she trusts you to be just as curious as she is. And it makes sense that Kristen is great at this, because she has been podcasting since 2009. That is the Jurassic era of podcasting. (laughs) And 2009 is when Kristen launched her first show, Stuff Mom Never Told You, which is actually still running. Kristen has since left the show to start on Ladylike, but it speaks to her instincts for this medium that a show that she co-created 15 years ago is still going strong even without her behind the mic. And to give you a sense of how much Kristen means to her listeners, and I am consciously using the word listeners instead of fans for reasons that will become clear in a moment, I wanted to read you a recent review that one of Kristen's listeners left on the Unladylike page in Apple Podcasts. This is from someone posting under the handle Over the Loon, and they wrote, quote, Almost every topic on Unladylike is something I have been thinking about or have been wanting to process with a smart person. This show is a way to do that. I read that review after I finished the edit of this episode with Kristen's story echoing in my ears, and I was very moved by it. I hope you will be, too. Let's talk to Kristen Conger on WALT. (laughs) Kristen Conger, welcome to The Midnight Disease.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So the first question that I always like to ask is, what is your particular manifestation of The Midnight Disease? If we... Picture Kristen in the throes of the disease. And you can think about this uh, in a podcasting context or in a writing context, whichever, whichever one comes to mind first. What do you picture when you, when you see yourself suffering from the benign affliction?
1: Oh, I see it so clearly. I see myself in my little home office at my whiteboard, and the whiteboard is full of indecipherable notes, <laughs> arrows connecting inexplicable mm-hmm. words and phrases mm-hmm. to one another. There might be a Venn diagram thrown in there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like, I am trying to, it is me trying to map out everything that is a jumble of spaghetti in my brain also with some Post-it notes. There are probably also some Post-it notes up there. <laughs> very tactile, I suppose.
0: <laughs> yes. I, too, am a very analog person when it comes to generating things. Um, do you ever do the uh, deeply deranged thing that I do, which is to take a picture of the whiteboard or take a picture of a, a page in your notebook? Because... No matter how many times this strategy has failed, you you think to yourself, ah, this way I'll have a digital copy that I can refer back to. And then it's like a picture of a crime scene like and trying to figure out how the crime was committed.
1: <laughs> yes, I guarantee you I have some whiteboard photos on my phone uh-huh. right now. Because the last time actually I uh, – this was probably a few weeks ago – I was in a place of whiteboard <laughs> and <laughs> and I had a moment where I had to step back and take a picture because I think that like with podcasts, it can be so easy for any kind of background work to be taken for granted by the listener because mm-hmm. there is an illusion with a podcast unless you are, unless it is a clearly Narrative, deeply reported, kind of story mini series um, for the kinds of one-off episodes that I make every week for Unladylike. I can understand, like I, I don't want it probably to feel to the listener like, oh, well, she put in a lot of work on this one. <laughs> it sounds it sounds really intense, mm-hmm. but. I think in this current landscape, I have the instinct that I then usually refrain from following through with of, hey, no, 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 like people take podcasts seriously and this is like a thing that that that, that does take work and we're not just walking into a studio yeah. and talking yeah. to a thought leader.
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Kristen, I, I'm so glad that you have have gone here because I, I this is something I wanted to talk to you about. Because you have been doing this for a long time, and you're still doing it. And that suggests to me that—you can tell me if this was the case at the beginning— but that this was not a situation where early on you thought, oh, let me just try my hand at this. That you, on some level it seems, either at the beginning or along the way— recognized that this for you was a meaningful expression of your creative values. And I had this thought recently that I want to put to you um, to see if you agree, which is something I hear very frequently when I... So a lot of times in doing prep for this podcast, I end up listening to podcasts hosted by famous people because someone who's going to be a guest on this show will have been a guest on that show, so it's a way to listen and and get some background information. So I end up listening Mm -hmm. to the podcasts of minor to major celebrities in whose work I would not otherwise otherwise take interest, candidly. Um, and something that they say very often is how remarkable it felt to them, and I'm making fun and I apologize, but how remarkable it felt to them to find this way of getting back in touch with people or um, connecting with their fans in a different way. And they say that like that's a relatable experience of podcasting. When my own experience of podcasting is that it's not supposed to be, I'll just say, it's not supposed to be a medium for people who have already been anointed to be re-anointed because they haven't been anointed in a while. It's a medium for people who whose experience is I choose myself. I choose I anoint myself as having something valuable to say. And in the spirit of what we're talking about, I will put in an extraordinary amount of work to make sure that if you do me the grace of listening to what I have to say, it's going to be worth your time. Um, I am going to gently step off of this soapbox. Uh, and, but I'm curious, like, how much does any of that connect with you? And, and how do you think about podcasting as a form of personal expression?
1: I think about it a lot and I started podcasting in two thousand nine and Same the here. fact that I Oh hey, oh my gosh. Same year. Man, all right, we're it's it's nice to meet a fellow veteran. <laughs> <laughs> um Usually when I tell people 2009, like, eyes go wide, I'm like, I know, Uh, I'm 68 years old.
0: (laughs) (laughs) In podcast years, anyway.
1: (laughs) Yes, yes. Um, But there have been many times along the way that I have had to ask myself, like, oh, my God, like, why am I still Mm -hmm. doing this? And it's always been... I don't want to get ahead of myself too much, but it's always been listeners who have pulled pulled me back in, reminded me, mm-hmm. whether they know it or not, of why I keep stubbornly mm-hmm. doing the thing because it does feel very stubborn mm-hmm. a lot of times, um, yeah. Yeah. especially when you know ad markets and the economy go roller coaster mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Uh, it can feel illogical, but. From very early on, it was this very unexpected relationship with listeners. And I say listeners rather than fans mm-hmm. because there wasn't a baked-in, like, fan base. You know, it's it's a different...
0: I'm so glad you said... Those are very different words, listener mm-hmm. versus fan. Those are very different words. So I, I appreciate the distinction very much.
1: Just their willingness not only to listen but also to share back and i think that the the level of sharing back like receiving very very long emails from people yes that still happens but i don't think it happens as much because we are you know in more of a time of dms and (laughs) things like that but like listeners allowed me to to not only make this thing and learn more about myself and the world in the process, but also kind of learn alongside them. Mm -hmm. And it changed my life and continues to change my life. Mm -hmm. And that's why I... Well, that and also hearing that episodes, guests, stories have changed their lives. It's that kind of reciprocal relationship that has kept me invested in this.
0: If I'm hearing you right, what you're describing is... That it can be very easy and tempting, particularly these days, to feel like the validity of one's... Let's just stick with podcasting. like The validity of one's podcast is associated with the commercial viability of one's podcast. When what podcasting was in 2009, and tell me if you disagree, unless you were... A public radio station that had a tremendous amount of resources behind something, it was a wing and a prayer. It was literally speaking into a void because there was some hope that what you had to say might somehow find its way. There weren't even really viable ways of marketing podcasts then. So you just kind of spoke into a microphone and uploaded your episodes to your RSS feed and hoped that by some magic... <laughs> The words would fall into people's ears. Um, And the experience of getting an email in those days that someone was listening to your show when you, you know, at at least in my case, you know, it's not like I was, it was being released by some otherwise known entity. It was just going out into the world. And the fact that people found it was a small miracle. And so the power of hearing from somebody like, hey, this matters to me. Mm hmm. It doesn't actually get any better than that.
1: <laughs> right. And and thinking about that time when podcast was still like such a fledgling media where it was barely monetized at all. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I think
1: at best you might get like a Stamps.com <laughs> ad.
0: Yes, the the coveted oh, Stamps.com. Stamps. Just click know, on the microphone. and that was like, oof. Yeah,
1: <laughs> click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Yeah, yes, and has that.
0: anyone ever clicked on the microphone at the top of the homepage? I'm uh, I'm very curious to know.
1: <laughs> microphone, you got to have the microphone on. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the other side of the story, um, but I also think one of the things for me personally, and something that I don't know whether this is healthy or not, <laughs> but I also think one of the things that has kept me. Stubbornly podcasting <laughs> is that
0: title of your autobiography.
1: I know. <laughs> Headshot of me in studio, <laughs> uh, chin on fist. Mm-hmm. Um, even at that time when I was starting, I I kind of had to fight for my ideas because mm. I'll go. Do you do you want the backstory? Yeah, I my, my little uh, origin I, story. I crave
0: it. Yes, please.
1: Okay, so the year's 2009 actually i pitched in 2008 at what was then just a website called howstuffworks.com mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and there was purely by happenstance i think a recording studio in our office and writers like your chuck bryant's your josh clark's um were experimenting around like playing around with this new thing called podcast because they were like, well, we, you know, I was a a staff writer at the time. And every week we would go into the conference room and pitch ideas. And it was really fun and nerdy. And we were young and enthusiastic. And the idea was basically, hey, we could probably translate all these articles we're writing into podcasts. Mm -hmm. And they were absolutely right. However, I for, for whatever reason, I think it was partly being like in my early to mid 20s. But I was like, well, you know what I, I'm going to do? Um, since House of Works at the time was like science technology oriented, the demographic constantly focused on was like men 18 to 35.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: So my little bright idea was, well, what if I made a podcast with the same Intellectual, I guess, rigor mm-hmm. as these other House Stuff Works podcasts based on existing articles, but we just look at it from not just a woman's perspective, but figuring out like how women factor into all of these uh-huh. topics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was a hard idea to sell at the time because yeah. it was considered yeah. very niche. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think getting a little bit of pushback and being at that age. And discovering firsthand why feminism exists and what sexism (laughs) is, Uh uh it only made me more determined to make what eventually became the show Stuff Mom Never Told You, Mm -hmm. which still exists. Shout out to Samantha and Annie. Um, And so I, I... I, I kind of made it unnecessarily hard for myself because I had to come up like my first co-host Molly and I like we didn't have a bank of content just waiting to be turned into podcasts. We kind of had to come up with our own stuff. And for whatever reason, um, I've just continued to do that for <laughs> now more than 13 years.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, so. I hear you saying what was appealing to stuff as a media organization in terms of turning website editorial content into podcasts. But what was exciting to you personally about doing that? You were already a writer. What was the pull of expressing these ideas in, in sound, in conversation?
1: I wish I could tell you that it was my ongoing love affair with the audio (laughs) medium growing up Um, and it was not that. It was much more on a very personal level. I thought that it would be a thing that would make my dad proud because Mm. he was a disc jockey back in the day Whoa! and always talked about radio in the 70s and it gave us like a i don't know i felt like hey this is a very unexpected way i'm kind of following in my dad's footsteps okay um i can unpack that later with my therapist um (laughs) and also i will never forget the editorial meeting that we had at how stuff works when like You know, stuff you should know was really starting to blow up. Mm -hmm. Josh and Chuck were becoming these these Internet celebrities Mm -hmm. all all of a sudden. And podcast fever was sweeping the office, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. and (laughs) our boss. And I I think he would be okay with me saying this like Mm -hmm. he was really gassing us all up. To become, and I quote, internet superstars. (laughs) Like superstardom was apparently in play for Mm -hmm, me, mm
0: -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm.
1: I was like, "Okay, I'll do that."
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: And it was kind of like a joke, and I never would have admitted it at the time. Sure, but I was like, "Okay." (laughs) <laughs> sign, me, sign me up. I don't have anything going on. <laughs>
0: yeah. I, I just have to name that. You said, oh, I wish I could tell you it was because I had this, you know, abiding love affair with radio. But then you told a much more beautiful story. Tell me a little bit more, if you don't mind, about your dad's DJ career. Like, what would he say about radio in the 70s? What were the stories that he told?
1: So it's very much part of family lore that he went from DJ in a tiny town in Alabama to working his way up into the record business, as Mm -hmm. he calls it, Mm -hmm. Uh, and was apparently a pretty well-to-do guy in like artist development back in the day. And then, uh, long before I was born, he had Something of a religious awakening, Mm -hmm. at least the way it was told, Mm -hmm. and he realized that, as you would imagine, working in the record business in the 1970s, not exactly, um, you know, the most Christian line (laughs) of work one could be in. He did work with Kiss, after all. Wow. Um, Wow. So, I mean, and those records would eventually be burned um oh, and
0: okay <laughs> yeah
1: oh yeah yeah uh not to not to take it dark but like my parents just went fully hyper christian and i grew up for the most part in a de-secularized household like mm-hmm. i wasn't allowed to listen to secular music mm-hmm. um nevertheless though every now and then these stories of my dad in Radio and music would come up, and he always seemed so happy when he was talking about it because those were his glory days in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So, I think that once I had grown up a bit, my parents relaxed a bit. Um, <laughs> they, you know, they. Uh, my mom started drinking wine with dinner, uh, things like Ooh, that. Okay, I know. Okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Next thing you know, and, we're going to be uh, getting new copies of those Kiss records.
1: <laughs> I know. Um, and as I got older in college, and I started actually like listening to some of the music that he was really into, like it just it added a new, unique dimension to our father-daughter relationship specifically, as Mm -hmm. opposed to his relationships with my siblings. And I just still remember being excited to call him up and tell him like, okay, there's this thing called podcast, and it's sort of like radio, but it's on the internet, and I think I'm going to host one. Mm -hmm. And he was super excited about that.
0: I am tempted in hearing you tell that story to make a connection between these glory days that he would rhapsodize about when you were growing up, but that must have seemed like a closed path since he had renounced all of that. When this prospect of internet superstardom or just superstardom mm-hmm. via microphone is mm-hmm. put on the table in front of you, I don't know, there's a way in which it was, it's like the family path was re-illuminated
1: yeah, I, 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 think there's absolutely a connection there, because something that I, that I do think about a lot, even today in my late thirties, when I was growing up and thinking about what I wanted to be, like the only thing in my head ever was I will be a writer. Mm. Like the, I knew I was good with words. Um, I that that is also what seemed to delight people the most. There is a joy in performance and entertaining wrapped up in all of that as well. Very youngest child syndrome too. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I was growing up and living in a very small, hyper Christian, semi-apocalyptic like kind of bubble of like, I didn't really think all of that much about, hopes and dreams Mm -hmm. if that makes Mm -hmm. sense like
0: it does there was there was
1: there was very little money to go around like my my hope and dream was middle class stability you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like Mm -hmm. i would like to be able to write i think that's the thing that i'll do i was a journalism major rather than an english major because i was like well that seems like a, a trade a skill that someone could be paid for I don't think that I'm rich enough to be an English major. Like how also I was 18. Like, I don't know what where I was piecing all this together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like I, I approached adulthood with incredibly low expectations for myself. Mm-hmm. And I don't I, I say that in a in a judgment free kind of way of like, I just wanted to be able to Stand on my own two feet. And Mm -hmm. so then to be very unexpectedly presented with an opportunity for public recognition or renown was, of course, very tantalizing to me, Mm -hmm. even if like, yeah, a bit misguided. And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> didn't exactly materialize which is fine honestly like today in 2023 to be an internet superstar sounds like hell
0: <laughs> yes yes well it means something very different now than it did in 2009 if it ever meant anything maybe you know um, yeah
1: yeah yeah it was also yeah <laughs> it was also a, a boss like gassing up his employees and he was good at it that's why mm-hmm. he's still the boss
0: <laughs> so if you don't mind talking about it I'm One thing that comes up often on this podcast, as you might imagine, is early moments of people taking creative inspiration from experiences that they have in elementary school and middle school. Um, And I know that your experience of elementary school and and middle school uh, were different than most people's are. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, what was this? Apocalyptic concern layer that mm-hmm. that you were mm-hmm. growing up with, and if you're comfortable talking about it, can you say where you were getting your writerly signals from if it wasn't being at school with peers?
1: The apocalyptic piece was essentially the kinds of evangelical churches and revivals that my my parents were taking us to were very fixated on the second coming of Christ and mm-hmm. the conviction that it's happening any day now and we're supposed to be really pumped about this and we're all going to be just swooped up when that trumpet sounds in the sky right and then we get to just like live forever in heaven
0: yeah you're going to be a salvation superstar.
1: <laughs> yes, that's right. Yes, yes. Um, I always kept a diary and I still have like all of them. old well, diaries and journals from kindergarten, maybe first grade, because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. uh, that always felt very special to me to be able to, you know, have, have this little thing that was mine where I could put all of my mm-hmm. uh, thoughts and ideas and not that I need to explain to people the appeal of <laughs> keeping a journal.
0: Um, <laughs> but not not everybody's but, keeping a journal under the particular circumstances that you were. I mean, it there are significant stakes to keeping a journal when you are being told on a daily basis that your entire reality will soon end. <laughs> yes, know?
1: yes. And also that there are two realities: that there is what is happening here in like the physical plane, but also what we're really focused on are all of the is, is the spiritual warfare happening around us at all times.
0: Yeah, um, yeah,
1: which is like a super chill kind of mindset, you know, <laughs> to to be in as like an eight year old. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. But I, not too long ago, was going back and and looking at. Some of that writing, and and I could see as I started hitting puberty, middle school years, and then I ended up going to high school, me starting to just
0: question things. What did you write about when you started writing? Were you writing stories were just writing about your day
1: well I'll tell you the 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 title of my my first book was jam and jelly for a Jolly good boy <laughs> and I don't know that I even finished it because I remember I took so much time on perfecting the cover art that I think I just like, <laughs> spent all of my energy on it mm-hmm. um as I got a little bit older in maybe late elementary, early middle school. What I always wanted to write about was, you know, vaguely autobi well, not so vaguely, <laughs> was more like autobiographical family stories. Stories about being in a large family with complicated dynamics. Um I I related very much to the character of Ramona Quimby uh-huh. in Beverly Cleary books. Yes. And so I I like that that's sort of what i what i wanted to bring to the page of like well okay ramona's ramona is me but also like what if ramona you know was homeschooled and her parents didn't let her like do much of anything cuz of uh-huh. jesus
0: <laughs> right 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 i remember a moment in my own creative journey of realizing you know i i, I thought i wanted to be a fiction writer and then I started to realize it's very hard to imagine these alternate realities and make them make sense. If I just write about my own experience, it I have it all at my fingertips. I don't have to imagine my way into it, and I can focus on the parts that are interesting to me. And lo and behold, oldest story in writing, that was when people really started to respond to the things that I wrote. Um, but there was also a feeling for me in starting to do that of this is very dangerous, um. Mm-hmm. And I felt that way even though I was not raised with a fear of the apocalypse or or raised in a in a homeschool environment and it I'm wondering if there was a sense for you of in wanting to tell the stories of your family did you know that there was a difference between the experience you were having and and the experience of other people were was there fear or apprehension about that
1: Oh I absolutely was very aware of how uncommon my circumstances were. I mean, mm-hmm. to to be a school-aged kid out in public during school hours in the mm-hmm. 90s, like, mm-hmm. people look at you funny, you mm-hmm. know? Whenever I would tell another kid, like, oh, well, I'm homeschooled. It's always that beat of like, what are they gonna say? What are they gonna say? Like, <laughs>
0: yeah. I
1: knew it was weird. Um, and a lot of my early writing was me trying to kind of process that hyper self consciousness mm-hmm. and reconcile this like deep love and loyalty that I felt to my family and to our our own story and lore
0: mm-hmm.
1: while also really 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 desperately wanting to kind of assimilate outside of my house mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: as well
0: yeah that's a lot to to try to balance and to try to articulate can you say what you liked about it like what did what was it that you felt loyal to and that you felt like you wanted to celebrate and maintain a connection with.
1: Like when we were at our best, we were a barrel of laughs, you know? We were um we did know how to have good times. And I think I also could see all of the effort that both of my parents were taking like misguided in some ways or not, they were to the fullest extent like doing what they thought was best for us and while that would ultimately lead to you know growing pains and disagreements (sighs) Mm -hmm, um and mm -hmm. ultimately like maturation in our parent-child relationship like down the road um i I just still appreciated it
0: that's a heavy thing to clock As an adolescent, as you're entering a phase when a lot of particularly creative-minded kids get into a burn-it-all-down, blow-it-all-up sort of headspace, it's very noticeable and notable to me that there was some part of you that didn't want to throw it all out. Which makes me want to ask then, a a moment ago you alluded to detecting in your reconsideration of these old diaries that there was there did come a time when you started to have some questions what were those questions and do you remember how they started to develop
1: a real tipping point that stands out was very much fueled by the apocalyptic piece and the sort of um well, what's the phrase? Toxic positivity about, like, <laughs> "Hey, we're all gonna die soon, but right, it'll be right. great because we'll be with Jesus." And I remember being earnestly zealous for God, really wanting to 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 follow all of those rules, etc. But at the same time, this this funny thing would start happening where I would be. Laying in bed at night, trying to fall asleep, and I remember tr- it it occurring to me. Okay, so when I go to heaven, they say I'm going to live forever, but what exactly is forever? And then I would s- start this anxiety spiral of like, oh my god, oh it never ends. It goes on and on and on and on. And it started to really scare me because nothing about that sounded fun or relieving at all. And that was probably a, a domino starting to fall of like, well, wait, okay. But if, so if I don't want, if, if I don't feel good about this piece but I'm supposed to like, but that's the end goal. That's the big prize. And it's freaking me out. (sighs) Hold on. You know, Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. even, at one point I even met with my pastor about it to be like, so (laughs) eternal life sounds, uh, (laughs) it's starting to give me panic attacks, (laughs) you know, and I, I, I don't know how he—he he tried to talk me off the ledge, but I um, afterwards I remember like leaving that meeting and just being like, uh, well, that didn't help.
0: So how did you then convince your parents that you wanted to go to high school in a secular environment?
1: I didn't have to convince them. Okay. In seventh grade, I think my mom— went back to work. She started teaching again. Mm -hmm. And I was the only kid at home by that point Mm because all of my older siblings um, had graduated, moved on. And it was just me at home kind of self-directing my homeschool day. And I did have some extracurriculars, but like I was spending a lot of time alone. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they noticed that maybe that's not, like, the best thing for Hmm. a tween Mm -hmm. or what. Mm -hmm. But the offer was presented to me of, like, do you want to go to Mm -hmm. high school? And what I was very surprised to see when I was going back and looking at my old diaries was I was kind of torn about it. Mm -hmm. Because my thought was, well, I can just do I even need school? That that was the thing too, that the whole like, the world's going to end at any moment. That also led to the questioning of like, well, what is school for? What is college mm-hmm. for? Like it just, mm-hmm. there was no, I had no kind of wherewithal with all of that. Eventually I said yes, but I wasn't sure at first. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was probably a very scary prospect, but then I remembered like, well, I'll get to see boys every day. Right. <laughs> so I got to yeah. go.
0: Yeah. So I heard you say in an interview once that when you got to high school, the experience of clocking culture mm. outside of the bubble that you had been in was one of, I think the way you put it was just yes-anding everything kind of instinctively. <laughs> Yes. So can you give me any specific examples of that and what it was like to navigate feeling pressure to say yes and and then figuring out what you actually liked of this new panoply of options?
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Um, My pop cultural reference points as far as. Movies and television went... We're really limited to programming from around 1950 to, like, 1965, (laughs) you know? Like, we could watch old movies Mm -hmm. and some Nick at Night, but especially, like, teen programming or whatever, like, Nickelodeon, not on. MTV, forget about it. So I was really, really flying blind, and (laughs) just, I think, in, like... Kids' casual conversation, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, like an ace Ventura when he's like, oh, or like, you know, whatever (laughs) the reference was. Just being like, oh, yeah, oh, my gosh, I know. Alrighty, then. I don't even know if it's the right one. I still haven't seen that. Um, my husband still makes fun of me to this day for, like, <laughs> everything that I that I haven't seen. Um, although now I, I, you know, I will, will confidently say whether or not I've seen a movie. Um, but I just was always, like, just trying, just begging like, begging the universe to, like, not just, I hope there's not a follow-up question. Do not ask me what my favorite part was. Let me just agree and mm-hmm, we can, like,
0: mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. i try
1: to, like, pivot, you know, change the subject,
0: mm-hmm. uh, make an excuse to go to the bathroom. Um, mm-hmm. Just quickly about that that sensation, was was the desire, because I, I was kind of expecting you to say that people would talk about stuff and you would say, like, oh, I have so much to catch up on. There, there's so much I want to see or read or listen to. But I what I hear you saying maybe more is that it was more about the relationship, that it was more about wanting to be not wanting to be seen as not knowing about, not getting.
1: Yeah. I wanted to seem normal.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Cause also the the school that I went to, it was a a private school, not a shockingly not a like Christian private school, but like All of the kids that I was in school with came from, like, wealthy families. They all seemed to, like, know each other. Like, I—perhaps even if I hadn't been homeschooled, I think I still would have felt like somewhat of an outsider, at least socioeconomically. And my blueprint at that point for, like, teenage relations and, like, social dynamics was— like whatever I'd seen on like the Disney Channel right. or like at sleepovers, you know. So I was r- really in for a rude awakening <laughs> mm-hmm, when I did mm-hmm. not have my like she's all that moment. Because um, <laughs> I, I mean, that, that was what I thought might happen. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. And I, I really, I do admire that younger self's confidence. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> uh, it really was just. I feel weird enough as it is, so let's just try to be like everybody else. uh uh-huh.
0: That makes sense. And I guess another thing I'm curious about at this point where all of a sudden you're being exposed to types of artistic expression that you were not previously able to engage with, at least openly, is what effect did it have on your taste to see KISS records be burned or know that Kiss Records mm. would be burned? Did it make you feel like there were certain kinds of expression that were dangerous? Or um, did you know instinctively that we don't need to burn those things? What What was your <laughs> relationship with that?
1: It was, you know, it, it is very unsettling for sure to look out on the patio one night and see you know, a wheelbarrow full of blue flames because your mom is burning some secular records. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, that's... Okay, this is where we're at. And I will say by the time I got to high school, there was not... Uh, and I mean, even the fact that I was able to go to high school shows that my parents, even by then, were not as intense, which is a, be- a benefit of being the youngest of five. Um <laughs> I mean, the things that still made me like a little uneasy that I still wasn't quite sure about were more like witchcrafty kinds of things. Mm. Like I didn't see I didn't see the craft until a few years ago. (laughs) 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 Um, It's great. And uh, but like a movie like that, watching it back then, I I would have been nervous of like, oh, no, maybe this is not, you know, Mm hmm. This might be inviting in some kind of, like, bad forces into my life. But it di- it really didn't take too long for me to just, you know, want to kind of try anything mm-hmm. that I could. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie that actually keeps coming to mind uh, that kind of paradoxically was one of, like, our family's, like, favorite go-to movies. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the film. Auntie Mame starring Rosalind Russell
0: I I have not had the pleasure I have not had the pleasure okay.
1: um, uh, it is an old film, but like I was actually thinking about it yesterday I was like no wonder I shook out the way that I did because she is this uh she's this character who is. Completely, like, self-possessed, eccentric, she doesn't have kids, and her kind of catchphrase is, live, 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 life is a banquet, and most poor suckers are starving to death. Wow. And I think that that, like, the Auntie Mame track, like, that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wanted to eat at that banquet, and I wanted to listen to whatever demonic music might be playing (laughs) in the background.
0: Plenty more to come with Kristen Conger on The Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. Folks, a reminder that if you like hanging out with me here at The Midnight Disease every week, you might like reading my essays on Substack. I post one there every week. Last week, I wrote about how my former best friend and I unwittingly predicted the demise of our relationship via comedy sketch. You can read that and more at samdingman.substack.com. And thank you for supporting my work. So what did you gravitate towards once you started being able to explore all this stuff more freely?
1: So um, I need to go back and reread it because I wonder if I would still like it as much. But in early high school, I read the David Eggers book. Oh, my gosh. It's a really long title. What is it? Um, a Significant worth, Work of...
0: Staggering Genius? Yes. Yes.
1: I read that and I remember it being the first book that I was just like I don't know. Like I I was so stunned by it for mm-hmm. some reason mm-hmm. and not that I hadn't like obviously like related to characters related to found myself in books, but there was some kind of emotional energy in mm-hmm. that that really gripped me. Of like, I I want I want to be able to articulate these feelings and make people feel mm-hmm. these certain things. Like I feel my heartstrings being tugged on in a way that I haven't before, and it felt extremely powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, music was a little more revelatory, and I also have to credit uh, my. Two high school best friends, Nell and Madeline. Mm-hmm. Uh, Madeline, who actually uh sings the theme song of Unladylike, they were kind of my like cultural guides. And Madeline, as the musician, was you know, kind of curating my my CD collection mm-hmm. and uh, so I went through like a big Elliott Smith phase and I was obsessed with Weezer and Liz Fair's Exile in Guyville oh, was wow, wow. like one of, <laughs> yes. Um, I can imagine like,
0: coming from a secular, I, I'm sorry, a, a, a religious environment to Liz Fair is a mind volcano.
1: <laughs> oh my, I mean, I remember being, cause I was probably in like 10th or 11th grade by this point. I'd started driving, and I remember putting on Liz Fair, and how rebellious it felt alone in my car mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. sing out loud uh-huh. the words. Yes, because I like I don't I don't know the name of the song, um, but there is a song on that album uh, where the chorus is "fuck and run, fuck and run," right. <laughs> and I remember. Right. First of all, like being still extremely virginal, but being like, "Yeah, fucking run!" Like, <laughs> and I felt so. <laughs> I felt so like, ah, oh, you know, it, it. It really felt like I was. Um, I, I was really stepping out, mm-hmm. you know.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So, I'm very curious then. One of the reasons I'm so curious about this period in your life is I think of you as a podcaster, as a writer, as this really astute dismantler of orthodoxy, Um, Mm. somebody who looks at accepted narratives about gender, accepted narratives about sexuality, accepted narratives about how we are supposed to behave towards each other. And, you know, kind of like you lying in your bed as as an adolescent and, and pulling on the one thread of the sweater <laughs> that, um, which I didn't even realize how appropriate it was to make a Weezer reference. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, you seem to have such a knack for finding the one thread that we need to pull on to unravel this stupid structure that's built built up around something and talk about the real issues that we're trying to navigate and it's very remarkable to me knowing all this about your background that you would arrive at this place of commenting on culture commenting on really mainstream ideas can you kind of walk me through how you how you came to start doing that how you came to to start wanting to examine these things
1: I think a lot of it is following what feels to me like a very natural instinct. There's homeschool piece of it, which required a lot of kind of self-directed reading and research, which I always enjoyed. And also, I think in the rigid confines of the environment that I grew up in, there was so much that was not talked about mm-hmm. and especially as the youngest I would always get so frustrated anytime I found out that I was like the last person in the family to be told something because mm-hmm. um, a lot of times what would happen is I would I would overhear things anyway <laughs> that I wasn't supposed to know about um, and so then I would just be like sitting with this information <laughs> um, not really sure what to do about it that at one point earned me the, the brief nickname elephant ears by my mom because <laughs> <laughs> I like <laughs> overheard her talking and she was like, how, how, how did you hear that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like in a way I've always been kind of uh, felt like I could only really rely on myself to get to the bottom of things, um, mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. you know? Yes, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I just to say, I also really resonate with this idea of from an early age thinking to yourself, I know this thing. What am I supposed to do? Just not talk about it. Mm -hmm. I know it. And we all, we all know it. Why are we pretending it doesn't exist? That's maddening. But I don't think Kristen, I don't think everyone feels that way. (laughs) You know, I like, I, I think, I, I think you, you, what I guess what I'm saying is I feel like you are articulating a particular component of the midnight disease mm-hmm. that is not maybe broadly shared. Because there are people who, and, and I'm not even saying this is an unhealthy impulse, who would rather just leave well enough alone. And it is the kind of cellular dissatisfaction with that <laughs> <laughs> that um, I think pulls one in the in the direction that you ultimately went. And it makes me want to ask you, to go back to this, this image that you painted of yourself earlier of doing the podcast in the early days and getting responses from listeners, do you remember anything specific about what they were saying that was validating? Like, was it that they were responding to this impulse of, like, thank you for talking about this, nobody talks about this?
1: Yes. I think feeling any sort of authority was very novel of like, oh wait, people are listening to me? Mm. Okay. That was very surprising. Um, But also too, just people sharing, sharing how particular topics applied to their lives and circumstances that I never would have considered Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. before. And especially at at that point in my life and also in my understanding of feminism, um, which was very very Mm -hmm. one-dimensional. One of the ways that I sum up what I do is I like to find out why things are the way they are, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: particular to, you know, often for women and girls, Mm -hmm. non-binary people, like, and that feels like something that I've always been drawn towards Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of, like, no, but, but why... Why is this? And I wasn't someone who was going to ask that question because that didn't necessarily feel safe. And I did not want to cause any unnecessary stress or concern, whatever it might be. So I took it upon myself to try to answer those questions, Mm -hmm. which out of context, also kind of makes me sound like a conspiracy theorist. But
0: um. <laughs> don't worry, I will. I will be sure to not <laughs> d- contextualize you that way. I mean, it because w- what you're describing is it makes me think of the moment where you go to talk to your pastor and say, mm. "Look, I'm not trying to rock the boat here, but am I really the only person who's ever come to you and said this sounds a little stressful? You know, like." Um, mm-hmm. And it totally makes sense to me hearing your backstory where the pressure or impulse to not rock the boat would come from, but then also the exhilaration. I mean, I can't get over this, the exhilaration that you described of listening to Liz Fair alone in your car. (laughs) Um, I mean, it's like... It, it's a, it's tra- it sounds like a little moment of transcendence. You're like, I want to honor the place that I come from, but also it feels really good to sing this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah. Even though, like, I had no real direct experience at all at that point mm-hmm, with mm-hmm. what she was even singing about. Mm-hmm. But I think it was the profanity mm-hmm. and just her attitude in it as well that felt very thrilling Mm -hmm. to embody and I really had not thought until now about how similar of an experience it can be for someone to listen to a podcast and hear a story that validates an experience of theirs that they never knew Mm -hmm. anybody else Mm. shared at all
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: and how powerful that just one instance can be and also going back to like our earlier conversation around celebrities like one thing that i have noticed on on Ladylike at least it's the stories that come from listeners themselves like people who are feel very like everyday folks you might run into at the grocery store you know folks who are just there to to share their own story. those are the ones that tend to be the most powerful mm-hmm. and get the most response yeah. from people. Mm-hmm. Um, and not to say celebrities can't share powerful stories as well. but I think it's like there's there's it's a different kind of intimacy yeah, um, that's really special.
0: Yeah. well, we have a relationship with celebrities where we expect significance and emotional impact from this person, whether it's because we already love them because of the movie they were in or the book they wrote or whatever, or because we know a lot of other people love them, so there must be something to what they're going to say. So we're much more surprised when they say something uninteresting than we are when they say (laughs) something interesting. And Mm -hmm. whereas you have this built-in awareness of what it's like to be the only kid out on the street during school hours, Mm -hmm. um, and that... Nobody really knows what to expect from you. It strikes me that you just have this innate awareness of what a specific, the the importance of a specific experience that most people don't think about. Whereas a, a celebrity has never, I don't want to say they've never, but when it comes to people associating significance with what they say, for most of them, it's been a long time since they've had to wonder about that. I don't know, just to wax your car a little bit. Like, I think that is probably one of the reasons that the types of segments on Unladylike that you're describing get so much of a response. It has as much to do with the story that the person is telling, but it also has to do with the way you're engaging with that story. Because I have a sense of you as someone who can see yourself in that person, and I, I think they can feel that. And somebody who was famous for being on a well-loved sitcom talking to somebody who's directed eight comic book movies they can see themselves in each other but most of us can't see ourselves in that and mm-hmm. that's just really different <laughs> it, just is. Really it is it is and there's
1: and and there is a there is a value in both In a way, like you know, and then people are coming. I think to coming to these, you know, very distinct kinds of podcasts for probably very Mm -hmm. different kinds of reasons. Totally, Um,
0: totally.
1: You know, I don't. You know, I don't want to. I don't want to anger all the celebrities listening. You know. Well,
0: I I should tell you, Kristen, there's quite a few. So (laughs) I (laughs) don't. I don't. um... If if you're going to get in trouble with The Rich and Famous, it won't be because of what you've said here. <laughs> <laughs> the last question that I always like to ask is, do you have a mantra related to your artistry? Um, something that you tell yourself when the going gets tough.
1: So my go-to for making unladylike is stay curious, build empathy, raise hell. Yeah. When the going gets tough, what I lately have been coming back to is do it anyway. Which is not exactly as in, uh, that inspiring, but Oh, I find that
0: quite inspiring. You know. I find that quite inspiring. Can you can you say a little bit more about what you mean like push through the hesitation, push through the doubt?
1: Yes, and this actually, so this this emerged like the the specific uh, mantra is write it anyway.
0: Okay, um, uh-huh.
1: and this this emerged during an exercise that I that I did on tape with a guest on an unladylike episode about uh, kind of deconstructing uh, the concept of manifesting,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: and I talked to this psychologist who is you know for the record like it it's a real debunking kind of episode uh-huh, uh-huh. um but i was going through this exercise with this uh psychologist who wrote a book about kind of the uh the mental pathways of kind of goal setting and the ways that we do or don't achieve those goals mm-hmm. and the goal that I gave her, and it is still a goal that is up on my wall. Like I, I still want to write the stories of my family um, and the fear attached to that, mm-hmm. the love and also desire to um, protect, but still tell the story. And so what we came to in that exercise was when The fear naturally arises that what to do in that moment is to write it anyway. Mm. It's so tempting to be like, no, my God, this is just like, this is too difficult. And what if I say this? And what if somebody sees that? And what if I, you know, and it's like, write it anyway.
0: Write it anyway. Not to overuse this image, but like give yourself the permission to sing it in the privacy of your own car. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then you can decide... If you want to roll the windows down and let other people hear you singing it. <laughs> exactly. Yes. <laughs> Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, mixed, and edited by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Kristen Conger for joining me on the show this week. Find Unladylike wherever you're listening to this. I will have a link in the show notes as well. As always, you can reach me with your thoughts on anything you hear on The Midnight Disease via email at midnight at walt.fm. You can also check out the brand new midnightdisease.com where you can find the full archive of our episodes to date, as well as a link to the Substack, .substack samdingman.substack.com. We'll be back on Friday with another installment of Good Company. I've got a, I think, very fun surprise for you queued up for this week. And in the meantime, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. Until then, keep driving. You're listening to WALT Homegrown Homemade Radio.